Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS. In this episode, I talk with Zeke Fox, an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek and Bloomberg News, about his fabulous new book, Number Go Up. Drawing from the book, Zeke discusses his efforts to understand the worlds of cryptocurrency, DeFi, and NFT that take him literally on a trek around the globe that includes surveillance of a pig butchering factory in Cambodia and culminates in a marathon interview with Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas just before his arrest. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, I'm really excited today to have Zeke Fox with me. He is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek and Bloomberg News, um, a national fellow at New America. He's a winner of the Gerald Loeb Award and the American Bar Association Silver Gavel Award and a National Magazine Award finalist and also a fellow Brooklynite. So welcome today, Zeke. Thanks a lot, Karen. I loved your book. And I think what is so good about it is uh, I thought it was just going to be about Sam Bankman-Fried, but it is actually about so much more. It is really a journey through crypto. It has a beginning where you're looking into Tether and some of the other crazy offerings out there. I'll leave it to Tether. I'm not necessarily saying Tether is crazy. Well, that we can talk about, but there's certainly a number of crazy offerings out there. And it is a kind of a journey, like a physical journey around the globe. So it's it's really good reading of you tracking down the crypto world and, and what doesn't seem to make sense to you ending and culminating in Sam Bankman-Fried. There are many aspects to it. And I think that one of the things that is of particular interest to my audience is if you can talk about financial crime, the encounters you had along the way with, let's just even say, how people were using crypto for criminal purposes. Thanks, Karen. So when I started out on this journey down the crypto rabbit hole, I didn't know very much about it. And I was skeptical. I write in the book, I thought that crypto was pretty dumb. And the more I learned about it, the dumber that I thought it was. But one question that I kept having as I learned more and more about how poorly crypto worked, what a high percentage of all these cryptocurrencies that were being hyped seemed to be giant ripoffs. And so many of the biggest companies in crypto, as I was writing this, were revealing themselves to be giant frauds like Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. So I'm wondering, what is kind of the continued appeal of crypto? Why are people still using it despite all these obvious flaws? And one answer I found was crime. And I mean, it's not a really original observation, something that you hear a lot of people talking about. In fact, one of the original uses for Bitcoin that kind of got it onto the radar of tech people was buying drugs on the dark web. This website, the, the Silk Road, it's actually really one of the first times that people were using Bitcoin for anything was to order drugs from anonymous dealers on this uh, random website. So cut to it's 2022. I'm 
maybe a year into my investigation of crypto, maybe pushing two years. And I've heard a lot about how it's good for crime. But one of the things that I tried to do in this book was to see everything firsthand. And this was something that I had not been able to see firsthand. And then I got a clue in the form of a mysterious text message. And it was somebody who was just saying, hey, David, did you pick up the milk on your way home from work today? Do you ever get these? They're sweeping the country. They're sweeping the world, I guess, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So by that point, I'd realized that I'd learned that a lot of these text messages, the goal is to engage you in a crypto scam. And that the, in my case, the person on the other end told me their name was Vicky Ho. They sent me pictures of themselves. They appeared to be like a pretty young Asian woman. A suggestive leg shots and things, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she claimed to be in New York, but the backgrounds of her photos were clearly not in New York. So it wasn't that convincing. It's a long story, but what it comes down to is that she wanted me to trade with her. She was telling me she was going to teach me how to make lots of money and that I could participate if I would just acquire some tether, a cryptocurrency, and send it to her in the special app. And in the book, I investigate what's behind all these scams. And it turns out the people running these scams are mostly in Southeast Asia. They're in Cambodia or Myanmar. And what's truly terrible is that the gangsters who run these scams, they trick people into coming to work for them. And there's whole office towers that are just full of people forced to work around the clock under threat of beating or torture to send these scam messages and to trick people into sending them crypto. I go to Cambodia, I go to Vietnam to look into this because I think this actually illustrates why crypto is so good for crime. Because you may say this sounds like a familiar scam. Remember the, like the Nigerian prince emails? These have sort of been around forever. But in the past, in order to run a scam like this, you needed to recruit a money mule, someone in the US or whatever country you're targeting who could receive wire transfers from your victim. And that person would have to give up their identity to a bank to open an account. And that person, maybe they weren't the ultimate bad guy, but they were a link to the bad guy. They would often get arrested and that would be how law enforcement would crack these scam cases. And often get no further than that. True. Although one of my favorite sources from my career was an FBI agent who actually did go to Nigeria and bust some of these Nigerian prince email scammers. But with crypto, you've got even less to go on. Like in my case, I sent 100 tethers to supposedly Vicky Ho. And in order to do that, all I had to do was Vicky gave me a 32 character string of random letters and numbers. And I sent my tethers to that address. And I didn't need to know her real name. The crypto company that's holding the tethers for her never needs to know her real name. And the payment's instant. There's no refunds. There are no clues for law enforcement to go on. So I was going to ask that too. I mean, certain currencies seem to lend themselves better to exploitation by criminals than others. Is Bitcoin being used a little less because of all the success that law enforcement is having, tracing it with forensic, going through the blockchain? 
Uh, but Tether, as you say, there's very little trail. Are all currencies alike on this? It's interesting because the crypto industry correctly has pointed out that same with Tether as with Bitcoin or Ethereum or most coins, there is a way if I know someone's 32-digit secret address and I, I can look up that address and I can publicly see all of the transactions that are associated with that address. So I could see who else they sent money to, who they received money from. However, this depends on me learning the bad guy's 32-digit address. And I think what we're seeing in most of the criminal cases is that that is sufficient, or at least the bad guys think it is. Even though, in theory, these transactions are traceable, they figure they'll be in and out before anyone catches them. And so there are other cryptocurrencies that, in theory, are superior for criminal activity, such as Monero, which is less traceable. But it seems like the most popular one with criminals is actually Tether. Not because it's so great for criminals, but because criminals appreciate that it's pegged one-to-one -one with the U.S. dollar. They do not want their criminal proceeds denominated in some really volatile currency. So even though Tether is not like ideal, it can be traced in the same way as Bitcoin or Ethereum, as long as you know the wallet address, it seems to be the one that these criminals are using most frequently. And they are often far from where law enforcement is that are pursuing them to. As, as we, we, I, I want to ask you a minute or two about Cambodia and uh, your trip there. But I first want to also go back to a little bit uh, indirectly, Sam Bankman-Fried, if you can also talk a little bit about some of the exchanges and their role in facilitating this stuff. Because certainly Binance and FTX were careless about the kind of criminal proceeds that they did, right? Yes. So at this point, you know, the crypto future has not come. Most people are not buying goods and services with crypto. So if you are a criminal, you do not want to keep all your money in crypto. You need to convert it into regular currency so you can go buy your jet or go out for fancy dinners or buy real estate or whatever you want to do. Even it Though in theory, you could pay for crypto, pay for all these things with crypto. It's just not mainstream enough yet. And so the, the way that most criminals are cashing out is through exchanges like Binance or FTX. And Binance, its founder, CZ, just pleaded guilty to this giant criminal case that's basically about how Binance did not do enough due diligence on its customers or even and even once it became aware that a lot of criminals were among its customers it didn't stop them so it turned out they'd allowed terrorist groups drug traffickers all sorts of bad guys to use their platform and it kind of became like a underground bank Binance had ways to cash in and cash out in most countries all around the world if you had an account there, it was a great way to move your money around the world, whoever you were. But now, as part of their settlement with the U.S., they've agreed to start 
filing suspicious activity reports, and also to hire people to go through everything that ever happened on Binance and file the reports they should have been filing all along. So that's going to be like a treasure trove for investigators for years to come. Among the people, you know, these are individuals that are doing scams. There's also transnational organized crime, right? And nation states that are in a big way using crypto. Yeah. These Vicky Ho scams that I was talking about, the bad guys are often like big time Chinese gangsters and they have their scam compounds in Cambodia, where the government seems to turn a blind eye to this, and also to Myanmar, which is ruled by a military junta, which seems to be funding some of its operations with this. Another example is North Korea. Crypto has become like a crucial way that North Korea is earning hard currency. And there's one example that I just think is so ridiculous that I couldn't get over it. In the book, I traveled to the Philippines to look into this game called Axie Infinity. And it's a little bit like Pokemon. And you have to buy monsters and you battle other monsters with your team of Axie monsters. And it became like this craze in the Philippines. People were quitting their jobs to just play Axie all day. Unsurprisingly, this ended in tears. And to make matters worse, Axie was hacked for $600 million worth of crypto. And the U.S. government has determined that this was likely the work of North Korea and that that money went to fund Kim Jong-un's nuclear program. So first off, you had it was like a cute game that looked kind of like Pokemon. The crypto bros were saying, literally, this is a cure for poverty. Soon, one day, everyone will earn a living playing this game. And then reality is hacked by Kim Jong-un to fund nuclear program. I think it's like the perfect encapsulation of just how badly crypto failed to achieve the goals its boosters set out. And that leads to also talking about transnational crime in terms of let's talk a little bit about um, what's now called pig butchering. And, you know, as I said, this is a journey with you, this book. And I was a little anxious for you when you were uh, hanging around that compound in Cambodia, you know, like, don't get out of the car and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about these awful, awful compounds that you've alluded to in Cambodia and who's doing this? So I spent a lot of time speaking with victims who've escaped from these compounds because you literally have to pay a ransom to get out. And I had spoken to people who'd left this one notorious site called Chinatown in Sihanoukville, Cambodia. And honestly, this stuff, if you're listening, it sounds like a conspiracy theory almost. It's hard to believe this is really real. So I had to go and see it for myself. I teamed up with two reporters from Cambodia who had done amazing work exposing this problem in a publication called Voice of Democracy. And they took me to Chinatown and the scale is massive. There's a unfinished casino that's like on the scale of one that you'd see in Las Vegas. And these are built to cater to Chinese gamblers. But then due to the pandemic and also a change in Cambodian law, it turned out this town was really overbuilt with casinos and demand 
totally fell off. So a lot of these casinos became sites for these scammers. And so you pull into Chinatown, you're driving down this avenue that's outside of town in this coastal kind of tourist town. You've got this big blue X-shaped casino on your right. On your left is a group of maybe 20 towers, each of them maybe 15, 18 stories tall. Each of them could hold hundreds of people. Every floor was just an office full of scammers from what I heard from people who'd been inside. As you keep going, you hit another complex of so maybe another 20 buildings, similar size, and like a glitzy hotel that when I got there was open. And this was like, the hotel was just adjoining one of these buildings where people I interviewed had been tortured, had been forced to scam. And I couldn't believe it. You could go on booking.com and book a room at this hotel. So I had to go inside to see it for myself and see what was going on, see if I could gather any clues as to whether it was active again. At this point, when I get there, the whole area had recently been raided by authorities and was mostly cleared out, but it seemed like it was active again. Um, and I had this crazy conversation. I walked up the stairs in the hotel to this giant marble floored dining room where you could have hosted a wedding. And it's totally, the hotel's totally empty. There's nobody going in the hotel. I'm the only guest in the hotel. Everybody's looking at me funny. And I get to the dining room, there's nobody eating there. And there's some confusion. And the, the host whose English is okay is basically says, just go eat, whatever. Like, I, I don't understand why you're here. Maybe we don't even have any means of collecting money from you. But like, whatever, go eat at the buffet. And I realized that it's kind of like a cafeteria for the people who work, maybe the bosses who work at these uh, scam sites. And there's a guy, big guy with a big belly watching TikTok videos really loud and paying off like his minions in cash while he eats. It's not like a real restaurant. Like there's a fridge with beer and the beer is free. And another waitress comes over who does speak English. And this hotel, it's really nice. And it's sitting right next to these grimy buildings where the scams are being run from. And so I, I said to her, what is with this place? Why is nobody here? What's with the building next door? You know, and I didn't want to let on that I knew what was going on. And she says, don't you know about this? This is Chinatown. And I say, no, I don't know about this. What are you talking about? And she's like, well, the people here, they can't really go in or out. I must have made a face because she said, oh, don't worry. The staff at the hotel, we have our freedom. And I was just like, one of those just floored to hear it in person. Afterwards, I was talking with Mech Dura, one of the reporters who had exposed this problem. And I mean, we could see people hanging their laundry on the balconies of some of these buildings. Like it's clear that they're, they were occupied again. And I'm like, isn't there anything we can do? And he was saying, it's just hopeless. The authorities don't care that when they do raid these compounds, they don't arrest the bad guys. And often the victims, the people who are forced to work there, get arrested for immigration violations. Bringing it back to crypto, this doesn't prove anything, but right at the entrance to Chinatown, there was a shuttered currency exchange. On its facade was that they would trade your tethers for hard currency. And I found tons of these currency exchanges in Cambodia, 
tried a couple of them out for myself. I had tethers on my phone in my anonymous wallet, identified only by those 32 random characters. And I was able to walk into a Chinese-run currency exchange, zap them my tethers, and walk out with $100 bills, no questions asked. And when I did that, I saw, you know what? I can see why people like crypto for this. This is very handy. There's been reports that billions and billions of dollars are being moved to these pig butchering scammers using crypto. This isn't like some niche activity. It's being talked about at the United Nations. It's like a international problem. Well, speaking of billions and billions of dollars, let's take a minute to talk about um, Sam Bankman fried And I know you kind of chide yourself throughout the book that you initially did a somewhat positive story about him uh, in which your only concern was I, I, his sincerity seemed to be there. And your, your biggest concern was, will he actually fulfill his altruism mission that was part of making all this money at FTX, or at least ostensibly that? H how did you end up seeing him? I mean, you have an amazing, the book has an amazing chapter of you hanging out in his, is it the called the Orchid, the compound or whatever that he's in? Uh, on the last days of Sam uh, Bankman-Fried's FDX. Yeah. So I thought that Sam Bankman-Fried was running what was essentially an offshore casino at FTX and that it was not something that I would look positively on. He's taking out all these ads, telling people to go trade crypto on his exchange. And from what I knew, many of the coins on the exchange were scams. I thought this was, as far as these offshore casinos went, likely an honest one. And what I didn't realize is that he was stealing all the money out of the back of the casino and taking it to go gamble on coins himself, which is why he's now in prison. But when FTX failed, I realized quickly that I had been wrong and I wanted to go talk to Sam and find out what had happened. So I flew down to the Bahamas I stayed up very late. He's a late night guy. I wanted to come up with something that would intrigue him so he would meet with me. So I said, he liked to always think of everything in terms of expected value. The expected value is if the odds of something happening times the value if it does happen averaged out over you know all the times that you possibly could have done something. And so what he believed is that you should take crazy risks as long as the expected value was high. And so in my mind, I wondered, was this fraud at FTX, would he do it all over again? Did he think it was a good expected value bet that went wrong? Or in hindsight, had he made mistakes? So I sent him a message along those lines. Like, did you make a plus EV decision or did you make a mistake? And he said, it was an interesting question. Nothing's black or white. And he might be willing to talk it over. So I talked myself into an invitation to the Orchid, his $30 million penthouse at Albany, this resort like nothing I've ever seen in the world. And we spent all day and night talking about what happened at FTX. And some of the things he said actually came back to bite him. So the key to his fraud was that he had a hedge fund called Alameda Research that was what was taking the money out of the back of the casino. It was taking it out in the form of loans. Now, he tried to say 
at my exchange, FTX, a lot of traders could take out loans. But what I had been told was that Alameda did not have to follow the rules that the exchange set for loans. And so I asked him for quite some time about this. And he finally said, I was like, come on, did Alameda really follow the same rules as all the other traders? Eventually he said, no, it did not follow the same rules as other traders. There was more leeway, was his quote to me. And cut to a few months ago at his trial in New York, he took the stand in his own defense. And he said a lot of the same things that he'd said to me at the penthouse. And then he was being cross-examined by the prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon. She said, I know you're saying that Alameda played by the rules, but have you ever put it differently in the past? And Sam said, I don't remember. And the prosecutor literally pulled out a hardcover of number go up and was like, here you go, Sam, could you turn to page 224, please? And the defense was like, objection, objection. But it was allowed. And they spent quite some time going over all the stuff that he had said to me in this penthouse and that he, he had to just say he didn't remember because it was very damaging for his case. It's starting to run out of time and I have a couple of quick questions to ask you, but it's always hard to ask a quick question because there's sometimes longer answers than quick questions. You know, one of the things that you talk about this book and you, you know, you do the NFTs and the bored ape thing. And one of the theme lines through this is how smart money, uh, the venture capital guys have invested in, you know, they gave uh, FTX money. They were really behind some of the board ape stuff. And the, the, the game that you mentioned, uh, Axio in the Philippines, what causes, I mean, is there just so damn much money sloshing around Silicon Valley that they just will throw it at anything. But what was your take on that? At the very beginning of the book, I get in an argument with my friend Jay about Dogecoin. And basically, he's he's my buddy from high school, and he's telling me I should buy Dogecoin because it's going to go up because people are excited. And I'm saying to him, don't buy Dogecoin. It's stupid. And I think what I learned over the course of this two-year worldwide investigation is that a lot of people were driven by the same things that made Jay buy Dogecoin. And so like, I felt a fear of missing out. I was like, Jay's making money on Dogecoin. Shouldn't I do it too? And I think these venture capitalists, they were like, hey, a lot of people like crypto. This probably isn't the peak of the bubble. Let's get into FTX now. It's going to go up from here. And if we don't, our returns are going to look bad next to our venture capitalist friends who did get into crypto. And so I think it just cannot be overstated how much the bubble was driven by this number go up thinking as the title goes like the number will go up because it is going up and when it goes up more people want to do it and it'll go up even more and it was not based on some belief in the fundamentals i guess then the final question and i know this is like reporters are often not wanting to do this but maybe you do and you've been living in this world thoughts about what needs to change what regulation, what reforms could make the crypto world safe for itself, perhaps, or just maybe not menacing to the unsuspecting and less use by criminals? 
that's not much there, but if you have some solutions. <laughs> when it comes to the scams, I think that the existing regulations are sufficient to prevent the majority of them. And the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. is finally enforcing a lot of the rules that the crypto people were breaking the whole time. And there's not like a strong need for new rules to prevent crypto scams. Like the existing rules governing exchanges, governing public offerings, if those were followed, it would stop a lot of this. When it comes to the money laundering and use by criminals, that's a bit tougher. Now, I was talking with one reform advocate recently who said that crypto wallets should work sort of like license plates. Look, when we see a car, that number means nothing to us. That person's still driving down the highway anonymously, but if they get pulled over, the authorities can easily look up who that car belongs to. And in the same way, there could be a registry of who each digital wallet belonged to. And in fact, I'm told that in India, where the government has played more of a role in the development of digital payments, they have a system like that, where even people who have very little money often transact electronically without knowing each other's identities. They have this sort of license plate system. So that would reduce the attractiveness of crypto for criminals significantly. But also a lot of the people who use crypto would hate that and would never agree to it. To them, part of the appeal of crypto is that it's a way to potentially stay anonymous and to hide your money from the government if you ever need to. So that would be a tough sell to crypto advocates. And I am sympathetic to the fact that in theory, you could have an authoritarian government and want to hide your money. But is that case important enough that we need to have this system that also makes it easy for criminals to zap money around the world. I think we're going to have to have that be the final word, and I, and I think it's a good place to end. Zeke Fox, author of Number Go Up, thank you for being here. This was great. And, and it is, uh, you know, I don't want to get too carried away, but it's, it's a great book, and it really covers the waterfront. Thank you. Go ahead and get carried away. I don't mind. Thanks a lot, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Zeke Fox, author of Number Go Up. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because Financial Crime Matters to me and to you. See you next time.